Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 486th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Hey folks, just wanted to give a heads up to our listeners with sensitivities to animal welfare. There is some content in the podcast that speaks to butchering and use of chickens when they are done laying. I chose to leave it because I think it's important to see how this process is being consciously addressed in our food system. Enjoy the podcast. Today on our podcast, we have someone who honors his family heritage of nurturing neighbors. We're talking with Clint Hickman about building community sustainability. Clint is the vice president of sales and marketing for Hickman's Family Farms, the largest egg company in the Southwest U.S. and one of the top 20 nationwide. Truly family-run, Clint and his siblings have built up the business that his grandmother founded. A graduate of the University of Arizona, he oversees the vast network of partners that Hickman's maintains and guides the company's marketing efforts. While growing up, Clint was inspired by how his grandparents treated friends and neighbors. From that, he now makes sure that programs are provided to help relieve hunger, support education, and promote extensive and ongoing training in communities that Hickman's brands are welcomed. Welcome to the show today, Clint. Are you ready to rock? I'm so ready to rock. I'm ready to egg roll, Greg. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. Well, basically, I started off from the smaller reaches of my memories of being in the barns with, with my brothers and sister and parents, of course. I am the fourth son, so I'm the youngest son, and that was extremely important growing up on a farm because as we got older... I never advanced out of the barns for such a long time. I probably had more experience with the chickens than I had in any other sector of our of our family business. And mm-hmm. when you consider brothers that as they get to their 
driver's license agents. They went into the truck driving or deliveries. As they got a little bit older, they went into the production plant and started making sure that they were washing and cleaning the eggs. My sister spent a fair time in the barns, but then she she went right to the, pre- the supreme position of uh, egg sales when she got a little bit older by working in the co- little company store that was on our, that have always been on our farm. So I spent a lot of time in the barns. I became a real whiz at operating equipment, especially uh, cleaning chicken manure out of the barns with oh. dump trucks and tractors. Nice. So I am, I am from the ground up. So I finally started to advance in our company business when I was in high school and then off to college coming back. Then I was, I was prepared to enter the workforce. Ah, in the workforce of your Hickman's family farms? Yes, I have never interviewed for another job. I have never worked anywhere else from the age of about five all the way to the age of where I'm at right now, which is, uh, let's just say, in my early 50s. Oh, wow. So this company is different now than it was when you were growing up. Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, I like to tell people when they come out and take a tour of our farm, I've been able to see the what has transpired with our family business. Our family business, when I was growing up, consisted of one farm. At this point, we own six farms in three different states. The technology has totally changed from my grandparents' time. I'll go back to the barns again. From my grandparents' time where there was a shovel and a wheelbarrow with taking the manure out and bringing the feed in to conveyor systems for the feed, but, but tractors for the fertilizer. And now it's now it's push button and everything is on conveyor belts, both going out of with the eggs coming out of the barns with the manure com- coming out the other way and going into trucks and going over to our fertilizer business. So... I've seen in egg production, I have seen basically it go from a shovel to a a push button and dirty overalls to clean scrubs. Wow. And quite a few chickens. Yes. Our farm, when we first started, had a grand total of about 25,000 birds when I started in the barns. I'll go back to my grandmother's time. My grandmother started the egg business actually in Kansas where she was taking care of a flock of about 30 or 40 hens at a time and whatever eggs my dad and his brother didn't eat, my grandparents took it in into the uh, store in downtown Joplin, Missouri, and she sold it. So instead of milk money, as you might be familiar with, this was this was egg money. Mm-hmm. And with that, she fed a family and she fed the chickens. And while my grandfather was in uh, a tungsten miner, my grandfather started having some health issues of being in the pit and he changed it. The doctor said to either get out of the pit, out of the hole, or you're going to die in it. So he switched over to, yeah, he switched over to iron working, started building the dams along the uh, river system, alighted in Glendale, Arizona, started to build the skyscrapers that would become Phoenix and grew his family. Meanwhile, my grandmother started right where she left off in Kansas I developed a small flock of hens. My dad grew up, went to Glendale High School, met my mom, and his first, his wedding present to my mom was 500 baby chicks and a handshake and said, you're going to go into business with, you know, my mom, which was my grandmother. And they just started building. So in 19, like in the 1950s, the, the flock got up to, on that farm, around, if I can recall, somewhere around 25 to 30,000 chickens. When my grandparents got out of the business and it just became my parents and us, we moved to a little bit further west, which has been the story of our life, a little bit 
further west. west. Yeah, got a farm, built up the farm to 350,000 birds. And when all of us started really getting in the business and realizing this was going to be our careers, so, uh, happened in about I would say 1998, where we took it over from my parents, and we went from 350,000 birds on one farm to now we have about 10 million birds wow. on the amongst the six farms. Wow! And you know, I always. This, this is a success story, so I love the success story, especially the part where your basically your grandmother started the business. Yeah, it's a it's been a woman led operation for for a number of years, and we hassle my dad about it all the time when he's talking to his buddies and discounts his mother and my and my mother. It's always fun to roll it back. Of course, my sister takes offense when we say the boys took it over, but <laughs> you know she can fight her own battles. She's fine. There you go. Two the size that it is. And, you know, we often talk about urban farming being small, but there's a really, really important part that that you play in this process of being able to mass produce enough eggs to feed. Well, in Phoenix, we have 4.4 million people. So I, I'm sure you bump up against those conversations all the time. Can you tell me about them? I love those conversations. Sometimes people come to the tact of uh, getting their first 10 chickens and going in a backyard and, and deciding to demonize people that are in the egg business for a number of years. But what a lot of people don't realize is the egg business and the egg industry is probably a lot of these same stories where we're multi-generational mm-hmm. and uh, we've just slowly built up. There were times where we all laugh and say, God, looking at our financial statement, we were too stupid to go out of business. How did right. we persevere? How did we, how did we make it? Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's pure inertia and you're carried forward and bigger by selling to bigger and bigger companies. We had to get hit a growth stage each time we brought in a new account that wanted to buy our fresh local eggs. So it started with bashes and went to fries then then price club and Costco came to town. Here comes Walmart. And it's, if you want to keep that business, you have to, you have to grow. Yeah. So that's that's where we found ourselves in over the last 20 years of just trying to keep up with the population base in Arizona. But also, as we expanded into different different states for production, we started to pick up business in those states too. We're the market leader in Hawaii now. Really? So if you if you go to if you go to Hawaii, chances are you're eating a Hickman egg from Arizona as you're enjoying the beach in Hawaii. Wow! Nice. Congratulations. Well, I say it with a lot of pride because that is, it's unbelievable how Hawaii mirrors Arizona. If you make contacts and treat everybody right in Hawaii, it becomes a real partnership just like Arizona is. And uh-huh. instead of surrounded by water like Hawaii is, I think we're surrounded by desert. So we, we, we do a lot of the same things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the interesting things, and, I, and I'll be honest with everybody out there, Clint and I have known each other for years, and I love and support what he's doing because of how you're, in big part, because of how you're doing it. And that's that you're really touching on a lot of sustainability and regenerative processes in your business. One thing of note in 1981, I know a lot lot of years ago, I was on the board for the Arizona Aquaculture Association, and we would travel to some of the fish farms around the state. And one of the things that I noticed was that they were harvesting the fish, harvesting the meat off of the fish, and throwing away what was left over. 
And that seemed really wasteful for me. So back then I designed my first sustainable fish farm on paper. And I know that you've done a lot to address that. Where do you want to start with that? Maybe chicken poop? You know, my dad, that was always the product that we were most concerned with. We have to be concerned of everything that comes out the end of a chicken. As a chicken lays an egg, it's also at some point going to probably produce some fecal matter. Yeah, you think? And this... And quite often, you know, people in animal agriculture had just decided that was almost a giveaway product. It was a byproduct. And if they didn't just pile it up in piles, they were just giving it to maybe farmers that could use it to put on their alfalfa fields. And it was a giveaway. But think of the costs that go into both the egg, but also what else is coming out. Also, the chicken itself is a, is a living, breathing organism. And what are you going to do with it if it dies or Eventually, you have to cycle out the birds. So we were always concerned with not just how much input we were giving to that that animal just to find out that you're just going to throw it away after all. We didn't feel good about that story. We never have. So at the dinner table, uh, actually, it was a lunch table, or we decided if we're going to get expand, we know we can sell the eggs, but what are we going to do with this ever-expanding mountain of manure that we were just almost at that point giving away, and we decided to get full bore into the fertilizer business. With that came you know, a, a, steep, a pretty steep learning curve, but we started to feel really good that we had a product that was nitrogen-enriched. It, it, about From what we read about, it's the, the best kind of uh, fertilizer other than bat guano. Mm-hmm. So we had a, just about a corner on the chicken manure market with, before we even started. And we just decided to develop processes to knock down the bacteria content. And we came up with a crumble and then a pellet. And we've been doing that ever since. We've sold a lot of organic fertilizers into the turf industry, mm-hmm. to the golf course industry, and to the leafy green oh, yes. vegetable industry. So there's nothing that beats our crap. <laughs> <laughs> but we feel great because we had a fertilizer manager tell us about a year ago we need more chickens because we we're running out of we were running out of fertilizer for him to sell and because it's going so well and that is the great thing to have in your back pocket. We have a home for everything. Yes, that is a great problem to have. And the other thing, Greg, is it set us on a path to really try to figure out what our impact on the environment was. We were producing a food we felt really good about. We have a home for the fertilizer that started to push up more food or grass or other things for the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. And we started to look at what else we were throwing away. And it got us on a path as a company. We recycle or reuse just about everything. We Our dumpsters, because we haul our own trash, we probably generate among all of our farms, less trash than an average apartment building does. Wow. And I I would think that we're probably marketedly under that. We've recently worked with a company that is taking soda bottles and water bottles and chipping them, turning them back into film, and then pressing them into egg cartons. And if you take a look at our website, you can see just exactly how many millions of bottles we are keeping out of the landfill at this time. And those bottles are are being recycled in California, but then they come over here and we press the film into egg cartons, and we're getting slowly to the point where we're going to take over that process ourselves here in Arizona and save the fuel miles to get that film over here. Yeah. So we'll, we'll be reusing Arizona bottles 
much less California bottles here in the in the near future. So you can feel good about picking up Hickman eggs now because they were in 100% recycled cartons. So as you're aware, there's so many municipalities that have recycled programs and you're, yep. you have a, a split decision to either throw it in the trash or throw it in the green bin to get recycled. Now all those egg cartons that were going in the trash as styrofoam cartons are now totally 100% recycled going into that green bin that they can now be recycled and put right back into an egg carton again. It's a three for three for one conversion. Three soda bottles equals one egg carton. Nice. Well, and that's especially everything going on with China and shipping stuff back to China. It used to be that a lot of our plastics got shipped there. And as my friend Chris Prelitz found out about a decade ago, they were burning them for fuel, which... <laughs> Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's not even go there. But we've started to see, I think it's Casa Grande that has stopped their recycling program because we're starting to bump up against not having a market for all these, all these things that need to be recycled. Have you, I know you work with Maricopa County. Yeah. And that's what, that's the goal here is to keep those bottles that we're hitting the trash because there's no home for them to go right back into egg cartons and the egg cartons to continue to be recycled. I learned in your class, Greg, when I was talking about how, how we, how good we felt about recycling and you brought up the basically topic of nothing beats reuse. Yes. I wish we could reuse the egg cartons, but because it's holding a food product, you have to use sterile, sterile yes. material. So if if we had our druthers, it would be great if we could just turn them on in and, and go ahead and reuse them again. But we do have to put them in that, that process just to re-sterilize them and, and have them so they don't have any pathogen that's, that's sticking in that carton that would infect the porous shell of an egg. So until that time comes, this is the best thing we can do. As you know, as I've come and talked to your sustainability class, we reuse all of the wash water. So basically any any water that's being used on our facility goes into a pond that we suck right back out again and use in the compost. Wow. Cool. So we are we are even reusing that. So we feel we feel pretty good and we hope we hope others do too when they pick up a carton of Hickman eggs. Yeah. Yay. Well, you know, that's, again, that's the thing I've always been impressed about. You come to my class multiple times and spoken and you're, you know, you're always looking to the future to see, all right, how can we be less impactful on the planet? And that's one of the things I love about you and your organization. So thanks for doing that. And and one last thing, you know, what's, what's funny is the toughest topic that we have to talk about to be a kindergartner or college age students is what do we do with the chickens when they're done mm-hmm. uh, laying eggs. Mm-hmm. I wasn't actually going to touch that one, but given you brought it up, go. No, I, uh-huh. I'm, I am more, more than happy to touch on that one because a lot of your backyard folks that love their chickens as pets, and, that's, and that is great, but they have a quite the quandary when their chicken is about to pass on. What do you do with that chicken? When, we have, when we're feeding this many people, we have to cycle out the birds and eventually let new ones, we grow them from baby chick stage all the way up until they're, until they're done laying eggs. So we now have a home for those chickens too. So we do have to euthanize the birds. Mm-hmm. We euthanize those birds one barn at a time. So that's as many as 300,000 birds over a, a multi-day period. Wow. 
And we take those birds to a new plant that we built two years ago. And that plant cooks the bird down, it feathers, beaks, legs, everything. And we turn that bird into a powder and a basically a poultry meal. And that in turn goes to dairy or animal feed. It could even go sometimes dog food. That's the chicken component for dog food. Uh But for the most part, it goes to the dairy industry who utilizes that protein again so we can feel better that that bird gave its its life and we respect that bird by by utilizing everything about her and uh, still continue to feed feed this growing population yeah wow cool anything else about all of that you, you have a well-studied and astute audience when it comes to topics like this. So I, I want to make sure that when we're talking, I touch on everything, the good, the bad, the ugly yeah. about uh, agriculture, because everyone has to touch on it to be, to be honest and forthright about what they do. Yeah, because it's part of the process that we live in amongst right now. Yes, it is. And how do we feed people? That's really the bottom line. How do we feed in Arizona, 6 million people. And what's kind of funny is with people's push towards plant-based diets and looking about plants, vegetables, leafy greens, those kind of inputs, it still takes our manure to push all that up. Yeah. Yay, congratulations. You bet. So there's another thing that you guys have been doing is the transitional housing project. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's a thing that just made some national news recently. Um, It is something that, yeah, thank you. I don't don't know if, if there's any other companies doing this. So this is one gigantic experiment. So I'll take you back about 23 years ago. We were having problems finding labor back then. And if we were having problems then, you know what the problems are now. You can see the thing about immigration issues and not being able to find people to do touch labor anymore and that being automated. Nobody that I know of is uh, waking up and a lot of kids say they want to be a fireman, a baseball player, movie star. No one's coming up and saying, I always wanted to be an egg farmer. Right. And that that is absolutely transpiring when people are not coming to our farms anymore looking for jobs, mm-hmm. especially, mm-hmm. especially the nation's youth right now. They're just bypassing all of those types of jobs are starter jobs and not understanding that they could develop into something else with us. We have a, a myriad of jobs in construction, uh, engineering, automation, everything, the things that we have to do in order to get eggs to the store. So back in the, over 24 years ago, we developed a program with the Arizona Correctional Industries. And basically, we were taking people that are just about to graduate out of prison and hit the streets. But they needed the ability or the chance to work and start developing a skill. So we worked with ACI and we started with this inmate program of 12 people. And since that, at this point on all of our farms in Arizona, at any one point, we probably have over 200 or 250 inmates that are working at our farms, both male and female in various positions. A couple years back, we found out that some of these people that had been working for us for two or three years were basically graduating or getting released from prison right into our homeless campus at Maricopa County. They had no other place to go. They had no, they had no work. They didn't have a driver's license and they had no family around. So transitional housing has been a need or housing has been a need. Low-income housing, absolutely, culture-wide almost, not only in Arizona, but the entire United States. But there's very few people that want to take a 
take a flyer on somebody coming out of prison and their first stop is, hey, can I sign documents to get this apartment? Right. And if so, they're going into some really bad areas that might get them enticed to go right back into the problems that got them in prison in the first place. So two years ago, we broke ground. Well, actually, two and a half years ago, we broke ground on a 40-person, basically duplex apartment. And if you were coming out and have worked on our farm, you have the ability to apply for housing. And those are single-unit houses, basically. And everything's provided, dishes, sofas, bed, TV, and they can get started in life. Wow. They pay, they pay a fee that is 20% of their wages, pays for their rent. Mm-hmm. And it goes into their fund, and if they go through and can prove that they now have enough money saved up to go get their own apartment, to go get their own car, they, get, they have the time to go get their driver's license, get their insurance set up, some of them even the first time they've ever learned to go food shopping for themselves, much less cook for themselves. Right. And when they get out and they want to continue to keep their job, or even if they go on to somebody else, if they did not cause problems or trouble and were great productive in their time with us, we give them half of that money back. So wow. it does teach them that they do have to pay rent. It has been phenomenal so far. We have had a full year now of all 40 units being utilized. Some people use them for two months. Some people have used them for the full year. But we want them to graduate out and get their, get started in life. Not one person thus far out of the ACI program that has come into our traditional housing has reoffended and gone back to prison in a year's time. Wow. So that, I have to... We can keep... I got to stop. Yeah, we can keep track of that through their numbers. So yeah. we, we know where they're at. Wow. That, so my listeners always know that I'm looking for Epic. That is truly Epic. When you were sharing that with me, I was tearing up a little bit here because that is such a needed gap for people. So it, you have no, you have no idea because when people are, are paroled or much less released, the parole officers have told us it is such a troubling fact that when they go back into their old neighborhoods mm-hmm. and they get back with the people that got them in trouble or around the trouble in the first place, that is such an impediment. And to to graduate out of there, we always felt good about our people that were coming out because at least they had a couple years of making money and they, they got out of prison and instead of $50 in a bus ticket, some of them had $30,000 to their name. Uh-huh. So you can you can go ahead and get started in life if you were able and blessed to make that much money while in prison. But the vast majority of these prisoners that work for us have their wages impacted by child support, mm-hmm. victims' restitution, fines. All of that starts getting paid while they're working in prison prison and we feel really good because think about all those inmates of all these years that were able to pay into their child support. Yeah. That means it's giving their kids a, a good chance of not, not following the same patterns as, uh, or necessarily having to follow the same patterns as their parents did. So all in all, it's been, it, it's been a great project thus far. I'm sure we're going to have to learn through <laughs> some issues, but so far wow. it's been, it's been a real, I think God sent to us as an economic model because we've been able to keep our labor yeah. and it's been a uh, God sent to them because they're learning a work ethic and they're paying into taxes instead of taking away from our tax base. And they're filling a, a gap called, and you used it, touch labor and starter jobs. I've never heard either of those terms before. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what they're, 
doing, but that's not all they're doing. They start off as those jobs, and, and sometimes these guys come in, and ladies even come with these skills that they learned on the outside, that we have fabulous construction workers. We've had engineers. We've had people that are skilled in robotics. They just hit a rough patch of their life wow. and offended, and, and quite a lot of them have become managers at our farms as civilians. That's got to make you feel great. Oh, it makes me it makes me feel great every time I'm driving and a heavily tattooed arm comes out of the window and wants me to pull over. My wife, when she, before she was my wife, when she was my girlfriend, would be a little bit skeeved out. And I said, yeah, I know what's going on. And, and uh, I'd pull up and here's somebody with a mustache driving a construction crew saying, Clint, do you remember me? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So that yeah. still happens. It's great. It's a yeah. great feeling. Yeah. And that's, you know, I always love to ask this question about you know, people in our industry, which is really the, you know, the food industry and a moment that something happened and you just shared it. And I didn't even have to ask, you know, when people, (laughs) when people, when people come back to you years later and say, Oh my God, thank you so much. Yeah. That's, that's, that says it all. Even my kids, when they're, you know, uh, we've, we've had some come up to us when we're in church and just freshly out of it comes up and runs and says, do you know what your, your family did for us? That's just got to make it's really you. nice. Yeah. That's got to move you. Well, and that goes back to, you know, your grandparents, how they treated friends and neighbors. And in many ways, the people that, that you're impacting, I don't, you may not necessarily call them a friend or a neighbor and you're helping them anyways. And then, uh, they, and that then is, they become that friends That is true, but, but, but Greg, don't discount. My, uh, my, my grandmother was a pretty tough bird, man. <laughs> she was, she was a, she was a, she was a businesswoman through and through, and, and she guided both her son. It's my, that's my father, uh-huh. and she, she showed just how, what hard work is and what it means and what it could mean to propelling your family along. They were depression parents mm-hmm. at that time, like, and they that. If you want to know about reusing and re- adapting, talk to them. Uh, talk to somebody who almost starved in the Dust Bowl, and you you figure out why they continue to keep their napkins and use both sides of them. Right, exactly. Wow. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Does anyone like to talk about their failures? <laughs> well, <laughs> on es- this show? yes, especially when we shifted. The failures are our learning experiences. Well, I, I would say probably it, it centers around that. I think my greatest failure was I went to a public school in a very underprivileged area of Peoria, and reading was important to me, and working was important as well, but I did very well. And I graduated near the top of my class of Peoria High School, 1983, Go uh-huh. Panthers. And, and I felt, because I knew how to drive a dump truck, and I knew how to ace school tests, and I knew how, all this, what I thought I knew, I went directly to the University of Arizona, and I absolutely got annihilated. I was not prepared to see a class of uh, 250 people, which was larger than my graduating class, all listening to a mic- microphone professor who really did not care yep. if you passed his class or not. So you do that times uh, five classes and you realize life becomes not about you. And I got absolutely annihilated. It was the first time I was away from home. Yep. And that was just, you know, a hundred miles down in Tucson from, from here in the West Valley. So it was humbling. I came back home. I was putting myself through school. Uh, my parents said, if you want to go through college, that's on you. That's your cost. 
Wow. So I purchased my own car. I purchased because I, I did have the ability to make money from a young age. I got to watch those that first semester of classes that I paid for go up and smoke. Came back down, went to the junior college, through the junior college system for a year and a half, prepared me for what I was going to be ex- expecting, went right back up to U of A and graduated with a marketing degree. Oh, good for So that would be my failure, and that was a learning experience of what I was going to teach my sons that, yes, it is great. Please, please do well in school, but please use that time for learning, not just memorizing. Yeah. Now, my, my son is going to Brophy College Prep. He just start, he starts next week. Oh, congratulations. And I felt it. I felt, thank you. I felt uh, it important that his high school needs to be a, a time to actually prep for college and, yeah. and to figure out what he wants to be in life. If he wants to come to this family business, that's fine. But if he wants to, you know, do anything else, chemical engineer, anything, automotive engineer, whatever, he, he needs he needs to get pre- prepared for what the college experience is going to be. Yeah. Wow. You and I have something in common about college. My first semester at Arizona State University in 1981, I got a 0.5 grade average. That was two Ds <laughs> and an F. But then I took, yeah, exactly. But then I took 19 years to go back. And then when I went back, I, you know, it was... 3.97 as an undergraduate and 4.0 as my master's, but it was uh, it was quite the experience back then. It seemed seemed easier when you get back when you knew what to what you were looking at, doesn't it? I exactly. mean, I, my grade point average was not that much different than than yours on that first semester. I had to live with that the rest of my uh, years, but I was really happy. Yeah. My mom always wanted me to make the dean's list, so I I did that for her on my last semester and said, I I just want to show you that I could. So that, but and I wasn't quite sure, Greg, that I was even going to come back into the family business. I had had my fill of manual labor yeah. and working sometimes alongside my brothers quite often directly underneath them. It's really tough to have brothers as your bosses, <laughs> yeah. much less your parents. You think? And I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do, but when I graduated in 1988, it wasn't the best economy, and I really didn't feel like spreading my wings. I had I had bills to pay, and I went ahead and went right back into the family business and never turned back. Congratulations. And what do you consider your biggest success? Well, in my 20s, it was getting to buy in my late 20s a, a sports car. Oh, what'd you get? Isn't that funny how life evolves? In my 30s, it was uh, hold on, buying hold on. my first home. What did you get? The sports mm-hmm. car. That's what I'm interested in. I bought a Porsche 944 oh, used. Nice. I had a... Uh, I had a 280ZX back then, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we went small on the European side. My first car ever, because I had worked and worked and worked, I saved up and I bought, so all of high school and college, I drove a 1979 Pontiac Trans Am. Ooh, so I ooh. was the actual stud of Peoria High School for a number of years with that car, and I wish I still had it. It was my first car, and it was probably my best car. I loved right. it. I yep. should never have sold it. Cor- uh, uh, 1966 Corvair convertible. Wish I never would have sold it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. both of those cars are probably worth more than the cars that we thought. Uh, exactly. Uh, were, at this point, were, were, were bigger for us. And, yeah. and now, looking back, they're trashy. So Yeah, there you go. So um, car your house. Yeah, car in the house. But I would say my ultimate success after after doing this, meeting a, meeting a beautiful girl, having her be my girlfriend, then my wife, and then fatherhood, at least so far is what I'd like to say. I, I haven't learned it all, but I have three oh. three great kids and they're uh-huh. coming up as fantastic, highly respectful and 
hard workers, and I I'm happy for that. And I think uh, so far I'm I'm doing okay with this. Anything yeah. can happen, but uh, this is this has been the greatest gift I, that that I can think of so far. Nice. And what drives you? What drives me is I've noticed my impact. You know. What drives me is to to try to become a better and more compassionate human being, actually. Mm -hmm. You get sidetracked in your pursuit of material goals, and sometimes it makes you kind of a bad person. And, And I felt like in my 20s and 30s, I was more the type to, you know, I would have the ability to step on people to work my way up. And that, yeah, I at least had that mindset because of yeah. your goals on, on material wealth and stature in the community. And, and I kind of pulled back from that years ago, especially as becoming a father and saying, hey, you know, those types of people, stay away from them. That, find the people that are going to let you step on their shoulders and both of you propel up yeah. by, by working together. So there's just, life is, life is tough on people that just want to be mean and nasty and arrogant. It makes life a lot better to go through and be nice and be supportive of people. And if people just don't want that, then stay away from those people. Yeah. So I, I think it's that. Just, better, just be, be a better human being to your family and your friends and our people around you. Because people talk better about you that way. Exactly. Exactly. About 30 mm-hmm. years ago, I created myself to be the kindest man that everybody, anybody ever met. And, you know, I don't always do it, but that's something for me to strive for. So I hear you. I've always had that comfortability around you, Greg. Oh, well. I always have. <laughs> well, thank you. So. Thank you. <laughs> if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I've tried my best to start reading some of the classics because I just didn't have time for it. It almost seemed like a like a put upon responsibility for you when you were in when you were in college. Uh-huh. Yep. But there's so many books and so much time I've missed. So recently, I don't know if I, I would say it's my favorite book, but I would say recently I read The Alchemist, the by Paulo Coelho. I don't know if yep. you've ever read it. Oh my! It's one of my top three favorite books. Okay, it's so just, we're we're kind of aligned, and the yeah. reason I love it is is the central message is follow your heart, and riches will uh, await you, and it just depends on the kind of riches. Just be happy with the the journey, and yeah. I I think we can all we should all remember that we only have so much time on earth, and yeah, and if if you're just happy with the journey, it it really doesn't it really doesn't matter. Amen so. to that. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well. I gave a piece of advice to my son recently, which was whatever you're setting out to do, just just be the best at it by working hard, never being afraid to ask for help, let others around you display their skills, and that makes them feel good that as they're helping you, you're basically helping each other, and you'll and you sometimes you get to be really great friends with people that are doing that around you. And if you're blessed to have kids, get them out of the house and into the outside. They'll start understanding why fresh air matters. Oh, amen to that. Amen to that. Yeah. I think I think we're losing a watching sometimes. I think we're losing a generation by letting them sit there and stare at the thumbs by their communication and and to let them sit there and it might be comfortable for you as a parent to let them go and spend hours in video games, but it is going to bite us all in the end yeah. if we don't start working with these kids. And I read something recently of people are becoming lawnmower parents, and I said, oh no. I think I'm a lawnmower parent. With the with the definition of a lawnmower parent is somebody that is removing all the children's obstacles oh. so they can have success. Mm-hmm. I thought it meant 
what I'm doing. I have my two boys in the yard with me on weekends pushing the lawnmower. <laughs> that is really what start needs to happen. About life by pushing a lawnmower. That's what needs so. to happen. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole conversation in itself, but young people having chores is really important. So yay. Yeah. That's how I started. And as soon as I mastered the lawnmower, my dad was putting me on tractors and dump trucks and it just kind of grew. And I nice. think I have, I think that worked out for me and I'm, I'm, I'm putting my sons on that same path. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Clint. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Greg, always a pleasure. Anytime you call, you know I'll come running. (laughs) I appreciate that. Thank you. And how can our listeners find out about more about Hickman's Eggs and contact you if they want? Sure. My email address reads out as C. Hickman, but it's chickman (laughs) at... (laughs) <laughs> at Hickman's with an S, eggs with oh, an man, S, Chickman funny. at hickmansegs.com. Uh-huh. And uh, anybody can find us, just Google Hickman's eggs, and you can see some of the story and what what we've dealt with, some historical things, and, and where, you know, what we've become, and, and contact us, especially if they want to buy a dozen eggs. There you go. And I, you know, I we've been friends for a while, and, and I just, I, I always admire your integrity and everything that you're doing in this industry to uplift the food industry. So once again, thank you for that. Yeah. You, hey, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to, to you and your listeners, Greg, and especially the, those, those many times you've let me come in and speak to a classroom of people that quite do not understand how food and food production yep. has, has evolved into the space that we're at right now. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Hickman's Eggs. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.